Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Let's uh, let's celebrate these three one more time. There's obviously a common theme in these stories. Um, Jesus, of course, is that common theme. But uh, Stacy was just authentic, living an authentic Christian existence among her peers. And look, look at this testimony. What, in, what incredible. So Stacy, thank you for the witness that you bear. And, um, I'm so excited for Monica, for Anne, and for Nicole too in their journey. So let's journey with them, walk alongside them, helping them to grow more into Christ likeness. Hey, today we are continuing our series in what I think is a very fascinating question. <clears throat> Does my faith have to look like the faith of my parents? I'm going to try to rush through this, not rush through it, but again, I'm going to speak fast here. So at, at its heart, at its heart, this question is asking this, what are the fundamentals that one must believe to be Christian? All right, what, what are the essentials to following Jesus? What transcends generations and traditions and denominations? What is necessary in following Jesus? And before I get too far into answering this, I do want to, I do want to thank Andy Stanley, who is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. He, he, he's providing a few of the insights into this question this morning. He's currently doing a series called The Fundamental List, and, um, I'm taking, I'm taking a few. Yeah, it's really a great series. If you've been through Starting Point, it's a great companion series to that. Um, but I am stealing a few of his things from there. So to give credit where credit's due. But, 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 but I want you to imagine this. Uh, imagine a Thanksgiving dinner. <clears throat> Everyone knows that there are two topics that you don't talk about at Thanksgiving. What are they? Politics and religion, right? Okay. So, so imagine that you have at the adult table, because there's always an adult table and a kid table, right? You have an adult table at Thanksgiving dinner. All the various faith traditions are the adults sitting around this Thanksgiving dinner. What gets happened at Thanksgiving dinner? Conversations get heated. Of course they do, right? Everyone starts talking. Every church tradition has its own traditions and its own theological stances and its own opinions on how to do X, Y, and Z. Baptism, we talked about this, right? That's a, that, that separates all, all, all six of these that are here. And of course, there could be several more traditions represented here. Every domination highlights and focuses on different theological stances. We all have different ways of worshiping. We all read from different versions of the Bible. I mean, there are a million things that could separate each one of these various traditions from the other. The only thing that any of these have in common is that they all disagree, right? (laughs) Everyone else is not right. Everybody else is wrong. Everybody else is confused, misled, misinformed. And so you're sitting over at the kids' table listening to all the tension and all the adults bickering about how they're right and how everybody else is wrong. And there's so much tension and division around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And mostly for young people, that's enough. That tension is enough for most young people to throw their hands up in the air in frustration and just call the whole Jesus thing off. And so before you get too hasty, hear me out this morning. The question really being asked is, what is indispensable? What's, what's the essential? What's the fundamental? 
We've been using this image uh, for the last several weeks. We'll continue to use this on throughout the next series as well. The question is, what's at the center? What are the hills that I am willing to die on? Literally, those issues that, that you know, literally, if my head was on the chopping block, I would defend those issues even to my death. Like, what are those issues? What's necessary? What's crucial? What's central? What can't be without? What's required to be believed as a follower of Jesus? And in light of what's happening in our, in our culture right now, I think another question that's equally as important, maybe even more so important, is what's not at the center of our faith? What's not essential? You know, what's peripheral? What, what's cultural? What's comfortable? What's fashionable? What's traditional? Those things that, you know, maybe we've just held on to for so long and we've just done them for so many years that we've kind of shoved them into the center, but they really have no place being in the center. And then what's harmful? And here's why this is so important. You're familiar with this phrase. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You guys familiar with that phrase? It's interesting. It's an odd phrase. It comes from the, the 16th century in Germany. And here's, here's what it means. In your zeal to rid yourself of something unwanted or, un, or harmful, don't accidentally rid yourself of something valuable and important. And so currently in our culture, too many people grew up in a faith or, or grew up in church where they threw baby Jesus out with the bathwater. And we need to stop doing that. It's understandable, I think, as to why we do this, because every generation, I think, has done this, um, even all the way back to the second century. We've taken some things that are, that are, that are new and, and novel, uh, but sometimes they're toxic, sometimes they're cruel, sometimes they're divisive. These opinions, and, we, and we've woven them into the central component of our faith, the central essential of our faith. We've made them dogmas. We've elevated them to the status of doctrine and dogma. These non-essentials have become essential. The non-fundamentals have become fundamental. And we shove those outer rings into the center rings all of the time. And for some of you, this is why you don't bring up certain topics around the Thanksgiving dinner table. It's because instead of having a civil conversation with people who disagree with us, the church has been unable to do that for the last 1,700 years or so. The church has been unable to do that. We shove the discuss category issues into the die for category all of the time. You don't want to mention who you voted for around the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? You don't want to talk about you having a gay friend. You don't want to talk about your view on creation. You don't want to talk about all of these very you know issues that are, are tangential for the most part, but we shove them into the center because we don't want to talk about them because we know they're going to be divisive. And historically, each Christian tradition has been a different member at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And after the rocks have been thrown and the table's been blown up, each tradition takes their children, they stomp out of the house, they hurry to their car, and they drive away in separate directions. And if you're in a tradition that this has happened, if, if you're one of those kids in that car, you've, again, you just witnessed, right, the, the denominations yelling at each other, the traditions yelling at each other, you're one of those kids in that car. When you reject one of those non-essentials that are being treated as an essential, when you challenge or question what is what has become dogma, even though it really had no place ever becoming dogma, well, then you're considered outside. You're considered ostracized. You're considered a non-believer. You're considered a fake Christian. You get shunned. You're out. And you may be considered, even though the issue at hand isn't even central or essential to the Christian faith, if you challenge what your, what your tradition has held up as a dogma, even though it had no right being a dogma, then then there's a lot of fear and trepidation in that. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So what happens? What? Most kids stay silent in that car until they turn 18. And they just kind of drift away. 
And the reason we know that these aren't essential is that when you hold them up against what you find of Jesus in Scripture, when you hold them up to the life and the teachings of what Jesus modeled, what Jesus prioritized, it becomes clear that these things that are creating so much tension are just sort of an add-on, right? They're not central to what Jesus said or how Jesus lived. We've made idols out of issues, friends. All sorts of issues we've made idols of. And we've chosen to die on all sorts of wrong hills over the years. Sometimes these things aren't just modeled or not taught by Jesus. They're actually opposite of what Jesus said and what Jesus taught. They're unchristlike, or even worse, they are anti-Christ-like. And church traditions are willing to die on all sorts of hills that aren't even like Jesus. But the reason they catch on and they get threaded through Christianity is because these new and novel ideas confirm a group self-interest. They support and they fuel a bias. They support a cultural movement. And as we've seen recently, I think they support a political agenda often. And the reason it's difficult to parse these things out is because 100% of the time, the leader who is a proponent of these issues finds those issues embedded somewhere in Scripture. You guys ever experienced this before? I'm not really sure that's like Jesus, but the, the person telling me about this is using Scripture to support it. And they're backing it up. And if the Bible said it, then God must have said it. And if you don't go along with these new and novel ideas, you're not going along with Scripture. You're being anti-Scriptural. You're being anti-God. But the reality is, my friends, give me five minutes in the Bible. I will help you justify anything you want. You know, the Crusades, horrible atrocities throughout history, the Crusades, when Christians in the name of Jesus went and slaughtered Muslims and the Jews, that was justified scripturally. You know, slavery in the 18th century in America, that was justified scripturally. You know that pastors in Germany during the Second World War were justifying Hitler's actions by using scripture? Apartheid, justified scripturally. The abuse and oppression of women throughout history, justified scripturally. You give me five minutes in scripture, I will help you justify whatever you want to justify. It does not mean it is biblical. It doesn't mean it's of Jesus. You take something out of context, you pluck a verse here and there, you take something out of context, you can you can justify anything you want. And I think we gravitate towards ideas that serve our purpose because if someone could put a chapter on verse and idea that I'm already attracted to, then I can justify believing that my actions are godly. But what happens often is that these new and novel ideas, these cultural ideas conflict with what Paul called the law of Christ. This is Jesus' final command. This is, this is his central command. This is the command that says, you know, if you remember, if you don't remember anything else that I've ever told you, remember this. This is central to who I am. If you're going to follow me, you love other people the way that I have loved you. That's it. If you want to make it simple, you can boil Christian discipleship down to this. Love others the same way that God through Jesus has loved you. There have been and will continue to be a lot of different expressions of Christianity, but if they are void of this, they are not Jesus' hope for his movement. And historically, the church has been one of the greatest offenders of this law. And it's okay to admit that. Historically, the church has been one of the greatest offenders of this law. And so to the person who asked, does my faith have to look like my parents' faith? I will ask a question back to you. How well does your parents' faith line up with this? Statistically, the reality is that most 18-year-olds, when they experience a bit of freedom from their parents, choose to also leave the expression of faith they inherited from their parents. 
That's just the reality, statistically, in America. And now they wonder, does Christ offer anything valuable to me and important? Did I always have my parents' faith, or is this my own faith? Did I always just piggyback on my parents' faith, or do I have a faith that is actually my own? And a lot of people don't leave the faith. They, they leave the gathering of Christians because when they look at Jesus in the Gospels and they put him up against the, the church tradition, that Thanksgiving dinner table and that car ride home, they recognize that there is a gap between what they've experienced and what they know of the Jesus in Scripture. And so they have to deconstruct their faith. And this isn't always bad. You still believe in God and Jesus. It, it just the, the church didn't seem to line up with, with you know, what you understood of Jesus in the scriptures and how you're kind of in no man's land, right? There's no place for you. You had to step away to figure out what is essential and what's not essential. You had to figure out what you had to leave behind as you ventured in your journey towards Jesus. And if I have to be like the Jesus of all of the traditions at the Thanksgiving dinner table who just are arguing and bickering and yelling at each other and throwing bombs and hating one another and being so divisive, then maybe I don't want to be a Christian. And that's what a lot of people are wrestling with. And if you know what needs to be left behind, good for you. I mean, it's mature of you. It's honest of you, isn't it? You're honest enough to acknowledge that faith that can't be questioned can't be trusted. And now you're trying to figure out what you do hang on to. And so in your journey to throw out the bathwater, please don't throw out baby Jesus. In your journey to throw out the bathwater, to get rid of those things that are non-essential, do not throw out baby Jesus in the process. Even if you have to let go of everything else, do not let go of Jesus. Now, traditionally, the church has not left space for people's faith to grow up and to ask hard questions. And, and to wrestle with hard issues. Most faith traditions condemn you for thinking differently than the version of the prescribed ver- uh, faith that they have, they've given you. Every church tradition is put in a box. This is how God operates, and you have to stay inside that box. And somewhere along the way, we all have questions, and questions are good, and questions are important, because a faith that cannot be questioned is a faith that cannot be trusted. And sometimes it's difficult within a faith tradition to create the space for those people to ask the questions that they actually have and to wrestle with the issues that they're actually up against. And they feel like they have to, you know, leave that faith tradition or, or step away from it for fear of how they're going to be treated or chastised if they raise questions about what they're hearing, what they're experiencing. And so most church traditions don't provide space oftentimes to learn what's essential from what's tribal, from what's fundamental, from what's traditional. You'd be surprised how few churches do series like this where I invite you to to ask your questions and we wrestle with them together. You'd be surprised how very few churches promote thinking like this, thinking differently, thinking outside of the, the traditional box. You'd be surprised by how few churches are going to wrestle with the kind of topics that we will wrestle with in the month of July where we discuss biblical sexuality for an entire month. You'd be surprised by how few churches invite their people to ask questions You'd be surprised by how few churches want to talk about hard things. You'd be surprised by how few churches offer courses like Starting Point where where questions are encouraged, where we journey together through the actual issues of life. But my friends, if we don't create space for people's faith to grow up, a person's faith will be deconstructed intentionally or eventually. 
Because a faith that isn't allowed to grow up and take into consideration the entire world, not just the church traditional box that they have been handed, they will eventually be deconstructed intentionally because the person's, you know, they're just going to walk away from the faith as, as, as living in life bumps up against what they've understood about the Christian faith. They're just going to walk away. Or it'll be deconstructed eventually because a Sunday school faith cannot hold up to the rigors of an adult life. Either we do it or life will do it. Life is too hard on infantile faith. It just is. When we offer our children a children's Bible version of faith, it will be deconstructed as they mature in the world. How many of you were told, maybe as a young child, that you're like David and your life circumstances are like Goliath? You know, and, 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 and all of your relational issues and all of your relational problems and all of your life problems are like Goliath. And if you just have enough faith, then God is going to see you through. If you have enough faith, then God is going to kill those issues. If you just have enough faith, then God is going to see you through it all. And you're like, you know what? I've been believing that my whole life, and it has not come true yet. It just hasn't happened. I, I, I feel like David, and I feel like Goliath is beating me over the head, and I feel like Goliath is winning, and David is losing, and I don't know what to do. And this isn't working for me because every time I bring up my questions and my fears and my concerns and my apprehensions, then everybody just tells me, why are you questioning your faith? And if that's you, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus in the Gospels interacted with people like you all of the time. He went out of his way to talk with people for whom the religious people and the promises they made weren't working for them. And if you find yourself at odds with traditions you grew up in or what you believe not lining up with reality, that's okay. It's okay to be in a season of doubt. There's nothing wrong with you. You're mature. You're asking questions, and that is a good thing to do. You're asking questions. You may have stepped out and stepped back, but you are still leaning in, my friends. Keep leaning in. And so does my faith have to look like my parents? Do I have to inherit everything that they did and believed? Do I have to follow their traditions? In some ways, it all boils down to this, my friends. What is baby? What's bathwater? And there's a lot of that could be said, but to address an essential primary truth, maybe the core truth, I'm going to spend the next few minutes looking at an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. About two and a half years into Jesus' ministry, we find him 25 miles north of Jerusalem. He's near the Sea of Galilee in the region called Caesarea Philippi. There's a unique history about this land. Uh, Herod the Great had given it to his son Philip, and so it has two names, Caesar and, and Philip. He gave it to Philip, and when Philip took control, then Philip gave it over to Tiberius Caesar. And so two names, Philip and Caesar. And the, tell, and the reason I tell you this historical uh, significance is because this isn't a children's Bible story. Right, This is real history in a real place. And so maybe having this city having two names is what prompted this conversation. You know, Jesus is walking with his disciples, talking about the history of Caesarea Philippi. And, 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 and they start talking, and Jesus asks them this very interesting question. It's a question, again, that is central to our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He asked them this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? He gives him this title from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man was a title that, that God gave to this individual who was going to have authority to rule and to govern and to be king over all of the earth. It's an extraordinarily arrogant thing either for Jesus to ask or it is completely naive. Or it's true. So on the street, who will people say that I am? You know, what's the word on the street? 
And, and getting the answer right to this question is a really big deal. And so our version of the question is simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the central question that we all must ask ourselves. If we were going to journey with Jesus, who is Jesus? And they replied, the disciples replied, well, some say John the Baptist, who had recently been beheaded. That's the reason they're this far north away from Jerusalem. Others say Elijah, who died a long time ago. Or, you know, maybe one of the other dead prophets like Jeremiah. You're either a reincarnate prophet or you come in the spirit of a prophetic voice who died a long time ago. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. That's interesting, you know, and so they keep walking along. And then, and then he looks back at him. He says, like, well, what about you guys? Who do you say I am? You've been with me for two and a half years. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that we all must answer. This is the fundamental question of faith in Jesus. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, don't get carried away, Peter. More of you should be laughing at that, because that's not actually in the Bible, okay? <clears throat> You're not laughing because you don't know your Bible, okay? Let's just, let's, let's just be real. It's kind of a Bible quiz. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, but doesn't it bring up an interesting point? That we've characterized Jesus into something other than what he claimed to be and proved himself to be. And the reason a lot of people leave the Christian church is because the church has peddled a version of Jesus that isn't very Jesus-like. And we've behaved in a way that isn't very much like Jesus' body. Peter answered, no, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And this is important. This is significant. Messiah simply means anointed one. Every king, every priest or prophet would be, you know, have oil poured over their head as they were declared that king. And I believe, that here's what Peter's saying, I believe, Jesus, that you are God's final king. That God has chosen you to be king over the entire human race. God has anointed you king. And that's why you're his sons, because this is a dynasty, right? And God is the king, but he has made you king over the entire human race. I believe that you're not just a Messiah. I believe that you are God's final Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are God's eternal king. The final king, God's son, flesh and blood, God made flesh. Jesus, that is who you are. And I just want to think for a second, friends, what if that's true? What if that is true? What if that is who Jesus actually is? What if Peter is right? Shouldn't that make the entire world stop and stare? If this is God's final king, God's anointed, this is God manifest, shouldn't the whole world stop and stare? Shouldn't we hang on every single word that he says? Shouldn't we stop and listen and contemplate? This is God's representative to the human race. Everything you say is God talking. We should stop. We should. There's only one response if that's true, friends. The response is yes. It doesn't even matter what the question is. The answer is yes, right? There's only one response if that is true. He is Lord. He is King. He is everything. Acknowledging who Jesus is and getting this right is everything. This is not just a reference point. This is the central component of the Christian faith, knowing and believing who Jesus is. He is our King. And as our King, he must become the center of our lives. Everything he says is God speaking. Wouldn't you love to know what God says to you? Wouldn't you want to know what God's direction is for you? Wouldn't you want to know what God might have to say about this? My friends, every single word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is God speaking. 
And Jesus doesn't soften the answer like we often do. He doesn't minimize who he is like we do in conversations with those who don't know him. Jesus replied, you're right, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was the revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed to you by your father in heaven. I am God's final king. I am the Messiah. And in that moment, I think that they all believed him. I think they all believed him. But they would unbelieve because they too had a God box, as we often have a God box. We try to shove God into our little boxes, and they believed him, but I think they unbelieved him the day that he died, because messiahs don't die. God's messiah certainly doesn't die. Their box was ancient. It was traditional. But when Jesus rose from the dead, all of that changed, and they refollowed Jesus, and they changed the world, and that is why we are here today. Because they recommitted to the belief that Jesus is God's final, eternal king. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on this for one second more as we sing a final song together. So here's just a fun fact, right? All those faith traditions that sat around that Thanksgiving table bickering and arguing and being so divisive and blowing each other up. This declaration that you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, this is the only thing, and when I say this, I literally mean this, this is the only thing that every faith tradition, Christian faith tradition, has agreed upon in the history of faith traditions. This is it. Everything else is a free-for-all except this essential truth, that Jesus is God's Messiah. And this one statement, this identity of Jesus, organizes and it prioritizes everything else for each and every one of us. Friends, if Jesus is the actual king of the universe, if you believe that, if you trust in that, then it calls you to surrender your throne. Because there cannot be two kings in a kingdom. You cannot go to war against a king who is far more powerful than you. And I'm not saying that because God is going to some throw lightning bolts at you if you disagree with him. I'm just saying you're not going to win. And you know how you lose? God's grace will say, you know what? I I love you too much to put up with this, so I'm going to let you be your own king off into eternity. And ask Anne or Monica or Nicole what being their own king. They all talked about surrender. They all talked about the importance of that. Every single person who has ever been baptized comes here and said, you know what? I was living my life my way. It was all about me. I was the king. I was making decisions. I was the authority. And it didn't go well for me. And my life was a wreck. And my relationships were ruined and I was a terrible mother and a terrible spouse and over and over and over again, the story is the same for all of us. You all probably have your own story. And then I laid it down and I said, you know what? I I can't be a king up against God. I cannot any longer. And so I'm going to advocate my throne. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not going to be king anymore. I'm going to surrender my way of doing things and I'm going to start doing things the way that Jesus calls me to do them. I mean, you know, you know, you know what Jesus asks you? He said, you know, I, I, I want to be your Lord because it's going to be good for you. And now I want my love for you to flow out of you. That's essentially Christianity in a nutshell. The Lordship of Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus flowing through you in love. And there's a lot of expressions about that, you know, so I, I'm not entirely sure who asked this question, but like, does your faith have to look like your parents? Well, does your parents' faith look like this? Because this is what is central. This is what matters in the end. 
And we're going to sing a song, and, and I just I want this song to be a prayer for you, and you can take whatever posture you want this morning, whether it's sit or stand or raise your hands or get on your knees, whatever you want to do. But I hope that this song is a, is a prayer and it's a declaration that God is king, I am not, and so I surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And now in that I want love, his love for me to flow out of me onto you, onto my neighbor, onto my enemy. That is the Christian faith.